We're halfway through the footy-thon, which is rounds five and six, and there's plenty to talk about. This week, we look at the day's break debate and explore whether teams are disadvantaged by a shorter week, delve into the issues with player access in the media, and discuss just how vital scores from turnovers are. You're listening to the ESPN Footy Tips AFL Podcast. Welcome to episode six of the ESPN Footy Tips AFL podcast, which is now proudly brought to you by our friends at Nando's, the home of Perry Perry Chicken, Jake Michaels. We now have a podcast sponsor. It's pretty great, isn't it? And uh, to have Nando's on board, I'm a big fan over here. Well, Neil Seawang, we sort of joked a couple of weeks ago when uh, this was in the pipeline that we might be seeing some chips and chicken around the table. We haven't got that this week, but we're hoping to uh, get that quite shortly. Hopefully next week. And uh, I've heard... Uh, throwing ahead to Jake's rant is a very spicy take, so let's uh, look out for that one. Very, very good joke from you. <laughs> and Christian Jolly from Chavian Data, welcome along. Any Nando's puns you like? I was about to say, no chicken puns from me, sorry. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, uh, look, honestly, we've barely got time to breathe between rounds five and six. Uh, one day, which is the, the Tuesday between the Easter Monday clash and the Anzac Eve, have we all had time to sort of process what's happened on the weekend? Not really. <laughs> it, it just goes by so quickly this fortnight, doesn't it? You you don't have time to, to draw breath at all, and all of a sudden there's another round in, in front of us. Oh, you think back to last Thursday when uh, Brisbane played Collingwood up at the Gabba, and it just seems like forever ago, and we're already uh, we're already going to be watching Richmond and Melbourne. Like it's it's crazy. Yeah, I don't mind it actually. Um, it's kind of like the NBA where there's games on every day. It's kind of cool, but yeah, you certainly um, you certainly have to keep looking ahead at the fixture and wondering, you know, sort of when your team's playing and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's quite good though. All right, let's, uh, let's get into our first segment. It's time for Three on Three. For those new to the podcast, Three on Three is where we spend three minutes on three of the big topics from each week. Though, as we found out in recent weeks, it tends to be about five minutes on each topic, but we'll, uh, we'll carry on. We're going to start with something that is quite topical at the moment, considering we're in between two rounds. Uh, the day's break debate. Does a five- or six-day break really disadvantage teams on game day? I mean, it's talked about uh, by fans and in the media a lot, but... We're going to discuss just how important it really is to get a proper week, uh, a proper break each week. Jake, do you have any thoughts on this? I know you were up at Brisbane last week and, and discussed it with a couple of players. Yeah, I think you nailed it there. I, I think the day's break issue, or if it even is an issue, is something that we in the media and the general public make a big deal of. And talking to some players over um, up in Brisbane over the weekend, um, it really seems like it's not that big of a, a deal at Clubland. So I spoke to Lockie Neal after the after the Lions lost to Collingwood on Thursday night, and I sort of asked him about the the day's break. So they had a five day break going into that game, and I said, did that sort of contribute in any way to the loss? And he just sort of said, not really. The way you play as a professional player, you don't notice it. Whether it's a five day, six day, or seven day break, you don't notice it. It makes no difference. I think I think the day's break issue is more of a a media and fans issue. I don't think it's really that big a deal in club land, and there's only a, a few clubs that really deal with. The shorter breaks anyway. I remember I spoke to um, Essendon's high performance manager Justin Crow for a piece a couple of years ago looking at the the dynamics of recovering from a shorter break and he basically laughed it off. I think his direct quote was the fact that after four days break any AFL player or most AFL players are ready to go. So I know that he's had a lot of experience um, you know turning around for Anzac Day and, and afterwards as well and, and he would know as, as well as anybody. So I think it's more people outside of the clubs and outside of the playing groups that get more worried about this. And the numbers back that up. I mean, we've gone back to 2010 and just looked at win-loss records for, you know, less than five days versus five days and so forth. Uh, and the na- numbers are pretty random to me. I mean, if you're on a six-day break and you're playing a team on a five-day break, it's six and two. So in the eight games that has happened since 2010, six wins for the six-day break. 
But then looking the other way, a six-day break versus a seven-day break. The six-day break's actually got the advantage at 220 wins and 205 losses. Then going down further, seven-plus-day break versus a seven-day break is 225 wins for more than seven days versus 222 losses for seven days. So the numbers are basically 50-50. There's no, there's no scientific analysis in that, looking at you know strength of opposition or where pe- where teams were on the ladder when they played against each other. But the straight look at those numbers, there, there isn't much in it. But it's a large sample size. I mean, you're looking at 200 wins and 200 losses. Like It's not like it's just happened over the last couple of years. This is over a long period of time, which sort of indicates that it doesn't really matter. If you're good enough on the day, you're going to be good enough on the day. It's a seven-day break versus six-day break. It's not seven-day versus two-day. I mean, it's, it's not that big of a deal. I think it's really just something that fans... Fans use an excuse, really. I mean, oh, we lost. You know, we only we had one less day to prepare for the game. And there's almost an argument uh, argument to be made that a longer break can hurt teams more. I know, um, thinking back over the last couple of years, Geelong's had a really tough time in backing up after buys and, and long breaks through finals campaigns as well. Well, we see that a lot with the um, with the with the buy round uh, heading into the finals now, where teams might not play for like 22 days or something like that. That's right. So I think I think players probably, unless they're really banged up, they enjoy the continuity of getting back on the park. Um, and especially, I think, teams that are really struggling would love the fact that they, like Melbourne, for example, would have a quick turnaround against Richmond. Um, so that actually might be a good thing, getting back out on the park. Sorry, I should say they might only play once in 22 days. It'd be a bit weird if they didn't play, <laughs> didn't play at all. <laughs> well, I'm just looking at the table we've got in front of us. And another one which sort of stands out, this is a small sample size, but a five-day break versus a seven-day break is two wins and one loss in favour of the five-day break. So it just goes to show if... If you're on your game when the ball's bounced, there's really no, there shouldn't be any problem. I mean, you look at Richmond and Melbourne, I think they've both got four-day breaks this week going into Anzac Eve. Uh, Collingwood has a six-day break and Essendon has a five-day break. At the end of the day, they're evenly matched. It's not like it's a four-day break against a seven-day break. The AFL, credit to them when mm-hmm. it's due, uh, they've managed to do the the fixturing pretty well for, for this these couple of weeks. We'll have to keep an eye on what the coaches say, the, the losing coaches of those two games. Um, whether they slam the break if they lose. Before we move on, uh, just quietly, how much footy is too much footy? I think it's nine of ten days we're having footy between rounds five and six. Uh, is anyone sick of watching football yet? <laughs> Certainly not sick of it. Um, I, I love Thursday night footy because it means that footy's on, you've got um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday, so you've got more more days than not. But it does, you, you lose context of the rounds in a, in a fortnight like this, I think. You, I, I can't even remember what happened a few days ago and we're already looking ahead to It all just to mixes round. in to the it next. It does. So. Barracking for a winning team, I say bring on more footy. <laughs> <laughs> we can say that this week. Uh, Carlton fans in the house are quite Absolutely. happy. Absolutely. All right, let's move on to our next topic, um, which is going to be the player access issues that have sort of cropped up in the media. Uh, so on Thursday night, uh, Luke Hodge came under a little bit of fire from some sections of the media for his mid-game interviews, which were... They were interesting, I thought. They probably didn't add too much because at the end of the day, what's he going to say that the commentators can't see, uh, tell you or what you can't see that's in front of you? But in terms of media access, Jake, especially at Brisbane where they're trying to get more media access, you had a different experience. Yeah, look, I certainly don't want to be slamming any club or anything like that. Everyone's obviously you know, doing what they're being told and what they have to do. But it's really challenging to to try and tell the positive stories coming out of the, the two Queensland clubs. I mean, they're both both Gold Coast and Brisbane have had tremendous starts to the year. I know they're both lost by 10 goals roughly on the weekend. But they both had really strong starts to the year, and it's the first time they both have, I think, kind of ever. We want to tell the great stories about these two football clubs and the, the players behind this, the, the, the players at the club and the people behind the scenes that are, that are helping sort of drive this. It's really difficult when you can't speak to these players about what's happening. Gold Coast has been really ch- challenging to get in touch with. We haven't had, you know, any luck 
being able to speak with anyone from the Suns. And Brisbane, while we have had some luck, it's it's again it's tricky. It's it's a it's certainly um, an issue which is rife across the league. I think it's not just Brisbane and Gold Coast. No, it's not. But they, they should be two clubs that are that are trying to do everything they can to get more exposure out, outside, you know, a pretty small market in 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 Queensland. So I don't I don't understand why they're not doing everything they can to try and get some exposure from from yourself and, and I'm sure others as well. Well, Luke Hodge was on Triple M Radio um, having a go at I think it was. Damien Barrett, who called him out for the uh, the post uh, the in game interviews, and he basically said that we need the exposure up in Queensland. I'm pretty sure that was one of his quotes. And Jake, it just seems like you were trying to give it to them, and they were there were donuts in return. Yeah, no, it wasn't donuts. I mean, we still able to speak to a player. As I said, I spoke to to um to Lockie Neal up there, but it would have been great to to speak with a couple a couple of others just to get a more broader sense of what's was going it busy on in the, the rooms. No, it was pretty quiet as well. So yeah, a little bit disappointing. Um, hopefully we can speak to people as we go on but we've had other experiences where you know just being in the other clubs and you know you look at someone so a, a team like Brisbane and then you look at someone like Collingwood so obviously Collingwood in Melbourne you know big deal here a lot of media in the rooms and that's another challenge where they've got to sort of the media managers have really got to sort of work out which players can speak where and that's been another challenge where we haven't been able to find the players that we want that happened to you Jake and Matt didn't you you cover the same game was it the Richmond Richmond Collingwood. Richmond Collingwood game, and you both went into the rooms post game, hoping to speak individually to players. And the the media manager at Collingwood said, "No, you can speak to one Just player one only player, between yeah. you," which is really restrictive for it from a, a journalistic point of view. Well, we had plans. I mean, once the result was known, and we sort of came together and had a plan about what we wanted to do content wise throughout the week, and sort of get down to the rooms, and they say, "Nope, you can only have one player." It's a little bit disappointing because at the end of the day, like that, we're trying to we're trying to expose them to the world like we're trying to write about them I, I can't quite understand it's you know it's not like we're going to be sitting down with them for 10 minutes we're, two we're minutes, after a two minute interview is all you need yeah two, I mean, two or three lines like it, it's not a huge amount to ask for the sad thing is i think nearly all players want to have their voices heard they want they would they invite more access but they're they're stonewalled by their own media managers and i think they're so powerful the media managers at clubland now they're the gatekeepers for content and for access Mm -hmm. and despite some players actually wanting to expose themselves to more media it it, it gets shut down before you can even get to them well i suspect as well um if you if you look at clubs own websites these days the amount of content that each club churns out on its own is is kind of telling in that they probably want to have a lot of the access for themselves. They probably don't want too much access coming from elsewhere. And then, of course, there are the broadcast partners who get uh, priority post-game and, and, and all that. So you kind of left the, the other guys, kind of us and maybe some other outlets, just probably down the pecking order a little bit and it's just a pretty narrow-minded view though like it, yeah. you want to open yourself up to the i'm sure that their corporate their corporate sponsors would want the the most uh i guess expansive access available and, and seeing their their um their support seen elsewhere outside of those club sites a uh, third topic for three on three st kilda's now four and one second on the ladder behind geelong neil question without notice can they make finals will they make finals yeah, I, I was I was going to say yes, they can, but I still don't think they will. I I just I love how how they've gone about it, and their fans must be so happy with the fact that they're they're showing some spirit, they're showing some fight. They're hard to play against. Um, they they're playing with a little bit of flair as well. I still think it's a bit of a false dawn. I don't think the teams they've beaten have been that great on paper, but. You can only beat who's in front of you, and I'm sure every Saints fan would have taken the start that they've been given. I think we sort of foreshadowed uh, in one of our earlier episodes that uh, they do have a bit of a, an easy run in the first few weeks. But when you look at the stats, I mean, up until 2016, 82% of 4-1 and one teams make finals. So 
they're either the four and five or they're the one in five outlier, Jake. Yeah, but 18% don't make finals. And I think I agree with Neil. I, I generally think they've... Look, they've had some good wins. And I think Alan Richardson deserves a lot of credit because I think probably 12 months ago, not even 12 months ago, five weeks ago, most people were saying he wouldn't last five weeks this season. So he's done a tremendous job, whether you think it's Richardson or um, the Brett Ratton influence as well. I'm big on that. Yeah, and I'm sure it has made it made an enormous difference. I don't think Carlton should have ever um, got rid of him at all. But um, credit where it's due. I think probably two or three times last year, I, I slammed him for for poor coaching and just failing to adjust to certain things. But he's done a great job and they're playing good football at the moment. And the the changes that definitely come in the coach's box, um, just looking at the numbers. So last year, they sort of probably went a bit too fast for themselves. They had a very high mark play on percentage, probably got hurt on turnovers a bit too much. This year, they've really slowed down their game plan. But sort of looking at them yesterday, this was pre-match before Hawthorne Geelong. They were obviously on top of the ladder before that game was played. And I just had a quick look at them and thought, geez, this doesn't really look like a number one team sort of signature, um, looking at all their numbers. But it's sort of, they've done it the defensive way uh, to start with. So just looking at some of their offensive versus defensive numbers. So points for their 10th, but points conceded their second. Uh, scoring once inside 50, they rank 12th, but they're the hardest team to score against for the opposition once they get inside 50. Um, and they're also they're the fourth best team at sort of moving, the, uh, sorry, 14th best team at moving the ball from defensive 50 to inside 50. So a very low ranking, but the second hardest team to do it against. So they've shored up that defensive end, which I think usually comes from the coaches' boxes and setting up structures and getting them right. That's quite incredible, really, because if you compare that to 12 months ago, that's a, that's a stunning turnaround for Correct. the Saints. Correct, and, and it's a great way to start. It's a great place to start, sort of, you know, protect yourself from going the other way, and then the offence will hopefully it's come. It's almost like they've stripped back like a rebuilding club can do. Um, we saw that with Melbourne um, under Ruse. We saw that with Brendan Bolton at, at Carlton, and they've obviously really shored up the defence, and then they're, they're going to work from there. Out attacking layers. It kind of reminds me a, a little bit as well of you go back to um, Damien Hardwick and Nathan Buckley, where it's like, did you know St Kilda hold on to Richardson a year too long, and then you sort of weather the storm, and then maybe he's sort of now freed up to play a style that suits the club a bit more. Do we think that that might be part of it as well? Coaches need time. I mean, we're in an industry, sadly, where if you're not performing at any one time, you're you know people want to get rid of you. Could you imagine world. if you did a bad podcast, Matt, and they said, we've got to get rid of this bloke, he's no good. Get someone else in. It'd be hard to get continuity and confidence, wouldn't it? <laughs> it is. So, and of course, St Kilda, you know, he's, he'd be on good money, Alan Richardson. He's not getting the results. So people say, well, you know, why we have this guy here? But you give some, give some time, just like Hardwick, just like Buckley, and there's been plenty of other coaches in the past. And all of a sudden, results come. The other parallels for Buckley and, and Hardwick was the fact that they did the review and then brought in a really strong assistant coach underneath, and that's where Ratton is. And he's obviously possibly unfairly treated by Carlton. Did did quite well at the club. Possibly. There. I mean, look, we could have a whole podcast on that if you'd <laughs> we like. Could. And then and learning for a few years under the genius coach that is Alistair Clarkson, and uh, obviously he's got some great some great knowledge there as well. So I reckon his his impact can't be understated. I think we've got another segment for another time about Alistair Clarkson and, and Jake's thoughts on him as well. Yeah. I'll- I'll pen that down somewhere. <laughs> All right, well, uh, let's move on. How about stat with Champion Data? Scores from turnovers is uh, what we're going to explore today. And we're going to explore how important they are and how they compare to something like scores from stoppages, scores from kick-ins and other methods of scoring. Christian, what can you tell us about scores from turnovers? All right, so I'll start from the start and what is an actual turnover? So... It seems pretty self-explanatory. A turnover is one team losing possession of the ball. But I think the way it's sort of used in AFL terms, uh, there's a little bit of a misunderstanding of turnovers don't have to be just blatant errors from one team 
you know, kicking over the man on the mark straight to the opposition or something like that. A turnover that we record at Champion Data is just any change of possession after a clearance. So you can kick long to a pack. So if Team A kicks long to a pack, Team B takes a great ripping pack mark. That's a turnover for Team A and what we call an intercept for Team B because they're winning the new possession. So again, when you talk about blatant turnovers, there's probably about 10 or 15 shockingly, you know, un- unpressured turnovers per team per game. But there's actually 72 overall turnovers per team per game. So about 140 times during a game, a, a ball's changing possession from one team to the other. <laughs> so I know so, that's like, that's got to be the highest of any sport in the world, really. Is it? Correct. I, I, I mean, we Tennis, do, maybe. Do... When you talk about unforced and forced errors, I mean, you can get some yeah. pretty high unforced error numbers. Talking but... change in possession, it's probably <laughs> soccer as well because they don't have yeah. the stoppages or True. the scores to sort of break that up. But it is very high. And again, if you said to someone, look, I just watched the game with 140 turnovers, someone will think, well, that's a shocking <laughs> game of football. Well, it's just your average game of footy. So, uh, so that's the first sort of um, get that out of the way of what a turnover is. But looking at punishing turnovers with a score, it's actually at an all-time low this year. So teams are actually punishing their opposition's turnovers with a score just 16.7% of the time. Um, going back to 2008, I know that's a fair way away, but that's when it peaked at 27.7%. So in that time, in the last 10 or 11 years, it's dropped by 10%. Um, and the interesting number for me is in 2017, Frio ranked last with at scoring from 17.2% of turnovers. So they ranked last in 2017, yet still would have been 0.5% above this year's competition average. So that's sort of how far we've dropped away in that time. The question is, why? why? Yeah, what do you put that down to? I mean, that's, that's, that's fascinating that in 10 years, we've dropped 10% on scores from turnovers. And the layman, such as myself, I assumed that the turnovers were becoming a, a more important part of the game and that teams were really trying to win the ball back in their back half and then launch scoring chains but, from there. Is this because teams are now focusing on other parts of it, like stoppages and trying to yep. score from stoppages more? So, again, it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg argument. I mean, we we talk about it peaked in 2008, 27.7% of you know turnovers being punished with score. The way the clubs are serviced by us now, all 18 clubs would have had access to that figure. So they've all seen the figure. They've all seen, well, it's high. We want to score from turnovers, but we want to stop the opposition from scoring from turnovers too. So it's that, it's, it's the more that champion data measures, it sort of allows the coaches to sort of, you know, mess around with the game almost. So it's almost, once that number got that high, it's almost dropped nearly every season since uh, 2008. And again, I think that is coaches looking at that number and thinking, well, we'll, we'll stop it happening first and then we'll worry about scoring it on so, our own way. So the people complaining about low scoring footy and ugly footy, can we just blame champion data for that? <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, almost. I've, I, I almost have that tongue in cheek thing saying the more the game's analysed, the more it can sort of, you know, it, the, sorry, to make it more simpler, the more the game's analysed, the more defensive it becomes. Yeah. Well, well, the, more, the more data that coaches have access to and the more ways that they can see teams hurting them, the more ways they're going to try and shut it down. Like it's like, it, I, I've said this for weeks, like it's a, well, weeks on the podcast, it's a defensive game and coaches are going to do, do what, what helps them win games, which is stopping the other team from scoring. I feel like um, something I've noticed this season is that, and this might, you know, contribute to, to that stat, is that, Teams seem to be going far more conservatively when they attack. So when they do win the ball back, whether it's you know from a turnover, they're not looking to go straight down the corridor like we saw a lot of teams do in the last couple of years and go straight towards... They're looking to go wider. Yeah, so a couple of numbers in that. So it's the lowest mark play on percentage. So playing on immediately after a mark in the back half, it's the lowest we've ever recorded. So we've been around since 99. So teams are really sort of taking that mark and stopping and propping in the back half. And there's also been, I think, the second or third most uncontested marks per game in the back half since you know since '99 as well. I think it's the follow highest the leader, the West Coast model. 
Correct. So it's, it's, yeah, going slow, sort of getting your structure set up and sort of flipping it around that uh, back half. We've seen Um, that, haven't we? The last three or four premiers, everyone's just tried to adapt that style. But as we all know, no... No eighteen. The eighteen clubs can't all play. Correct. There's no. There's no one fit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Suit all. Sort of. You have to play to your own strengths. Um. Which you know. Sort of. That's what you start to see around finals times. The game plans really sort of start to come to the fore. Funnily enough, I'm pretty sure I saw a stat from the weekend from Port Adelaide's game, and they beat West Coast, and they played on. Their their play on percentage was so much higher than what they did last year. So, like, you kind of look look at the season as a whole, but then individual games and Port went the opposite way and played mm. on from their marks and ended up beating West Coast by whatever it was, 40-odd points. Interestingly enough, that was in uh, pretty wet conditions as well, so I don't think West Coast could actually get their chipping the ball around um, game style going and defending with the ball in hand, and, and Port just kept it simple and just played that old-school wet footy and just got it forward, played on. Well, I said that in, in the Heroes and Villains column. I said Port adapted to the conditions better. They won yeah. the contested ball. They bullied West Coast around the contest. And mm. West Coast kept trying to play their sort of dry footy style and it really didn't work. And Port bombed inside 50 and got the reward. Just on a side note, if the grand final was played in wet conditions, would you be backing Port to beat anyone? I don't Big know. You midfield bodies. You wouldn't be backing West Coast just no. the way that they've that they played on the weekend. Um, yeah, interesting. Um, Good. Another yeah. debate. Well, Another well, side debate. <laughs> I mean, you don't want to be an Eddie had tenant playing West Coast. You'd probably no. be wanting to play them outside, eh? Still sticking from turnovers. So again, we can break that up into forward half. Uh, again, so looking at the the positive side of a turnover is you're intercepting the ball. One team's turned it over, and you're the intercept. So forward half intercepts, so teams winning it back in their forward half, is that 24.2 per game this year, so about around the same average we've had for the last four seasons. But teams are only punishing 25% of those with a score, so that's you winning the ball back in your forward half from the opposition. You're only scoring one in four times. Again, last year was 29%, two years ago it was at 33%, so that's how much we've dropped in just two years. Uh, we've gone from sort of one in three defensive half turnovers being punished with a score to one in four. So again, it's it's not even that the turnovers are happening further away from goal, and that's why it's getting harder to score from them. The structure is just so well set up that even if teams are turning it over in their own defensive half, they've still got enough sort of enough players behind them and structure behind them to protect the scoring going the other way. Coaches, they, they're defensively minded first. And Bring foremost. back Malcolm Blight. If, no matter what the other uh, team scores, we'll score more. That was his mantra. Yeah, Scoring from clearances has gone up slightly. So last year you scored from 22.7% of your clearance wins this year it's 24% of the clearance uh, wins and it's sort of a philosophical debate we have in the office Um, what would you rather see if you go down and watch a game of football do you want to see guys scoring from turnovers or scoring from clearances or do you sort of not notice the difference I I like seeing one of the reasons I like the 666 in the centre square is a a strong clean clearance and like your Patrick Mm. Dangerfield is just running straight through and taking a shot for goal or hitting someone up on the lead that's pretty sexy football for me well, I mean, if you take a nice back 50 intercept and then you go coast to coast, mm. kind of same with kicking, like scoring from kick-ins. A nice coast to coast goal always gets me pretty excited. Yeah, I probably am in the camp where I'll certainly notice Dangerfield bursting out of the centre square, but probably wouldn't be able to notice a theme between turnovers and um, and clearances throughout a, a full game. Yeah, it's just that overarching question of, you know, what what's a good game of football look like? And it was just one of those questions of, should you... So at the moment, about 55% of scores come from intercepts. Um, I think it's about 4% from kick-ins and the rest, you know, 40-odd percent from clearances. So if clearance, if clearance scoring went up or intercept scoring went up, which would lead to a better-looking game, and it's, it's, again, probably a 50-50 split within the office of what actually is better on the eye. One so last one on turnovers... 
question without notice. What is a clanger? Is that the that turnover where it's like an unforced error? So a clanger um, is a little Love bit different than a turnover. Clanger. So again, clanger is another... We, we could do a million podcasts and probably misunderstood stats. So a clanger <laughs> is everything from a disposal clanger. So that's a kick or a handball that goes straight to the opposition. So the main... Uh, the main sort of um, thing you're looking for there is you gave your teammates no chance to win the ball. So I've kicked it 50 metres down the ground, but it went straight to the opposition. So they're disposal clangers, 50 metre penalties, freeze against, drop marks, uh, what we call debits. So that would be, you know, you're running down the wing, or even a no pressure area, running down the wing, try to have a running bounce, lose possession of the ball. They're all counted as clangers. So right? a kick and a handball clanger, they probably make up 50% of the clangers. Um, freeze against is the big one that people don't sort of realise they're a clanger. So... Again, they're slightly different because you can have you can have a clanger that doesn't actually cause a turnover. So if you're if Melbourne has the ball and North Melbourne give away a free kick, North have given away a clanger, but they haven't lost possession of the ball because Melbourne had possession mm-hmm. anyway. So again, they're sort of two slightly different stats, but we do have three sort of uh, ways to value a turnover. So you do you have a takeaway turnover, which is basically the first example I gave: kick long to a pack, the opposition takes a pack mark, they've just won the ball back from you. Then we sort of have giveaways, and we break them into, similar to tennis, forced and unforced errors, if you like. So a forced giveaways, you're under enough pressure, and you've ended up kicking, having a kick clang or a handball clang straight to the opposition, and an unforced uh, giveaway being that you were under no pressure. So again, we split the game up like that. Um, and again, a quick look at it. The type of turnovers aren't changing this year. It's just getting harder to score from all types of turnovers. There you go. Misunderstood stats. I really like that for another time, perhaps. In the meantime, a spin-off though, podcast. <laughs> it's time for my favourite segment. I've had a gutful. Jake, it's your time to let us know what really drew your ire this week. And I know you're pretty passionate about this. Um, what are you going to rant about? Well, it was initially going to be Brisbane cab drivers, but something else has popped up <laughs> on my arrival back into Melbourne. Um, we can say that for another time. We might have to. <laughs> I have had an absolute gutful of people calling Jack Zebel an A-grade player. This is a guy that has never, in my opinion, in his career, been an A-grade player. He's a B, B plus at best, but a solid B-grade citizen. He shouldn't be captain of that football club. What he did on the weekend was deplorable. It really was. And the thing is, without slamming Zebel too much because he had an absolute shocking game, I wonder how much of it sort of needs to be blamed on Brad Scott as well. And I think it's the, the two of them. Together, they they both they weren't coherent. They weren't on the same page. And in their marquee game against the Bombers, their one marquee game for the year, they bombed. They were both really poor. So let me just read out a couple of stats from Zebel. Six disposals for the game, the equal lowest on the ground. One mark for the game, the equal lowest on the ground. Zero clearances, zero goals. He went into just one center square clearance, so one centre bounce for the whole game. One for the whole game. I know he's playing more forward, but this is a guy who's got to play, got to go into more centre bounces when the te- when games are on the line. He went into one. That was in the 23rd minute of the second quarter, just after Essendon had kicked a goal to go up 54 to 19. The game was dead at that point. And he goes in, they win the clearance. I mean, this is just ridiculous. Why he's... Firstly, there's, there's a couple of points to this. So one, why is he playing permanently as a forward because he's not having much impact as a forward and two why is he not then when the game's on the line coming into the midfield and this is something where I get frustrated because I wonder with the new rules where runners can't come on the ground why is he not taking the the onus on him to say right I'm the captain of this football club I'm throwing myself into the centre clearance we've just conceded a goal two goals we're down by 
12, 15, 20 points. Let's get me in there now, and I'm going to try and will this ball forward. It's not happening. It's just not happening at all, and it's really, it's a really poor, poor effort all round. Yeah, you'd wonder if he wasn't captain, whether he'd be dropped this week because he he's not had any impact this year. Shocking. And and if they're trying to make him a permanent forward, or if he's not fit enough to go through the midfield, you've got to pick your best twenty-two, don't you? One mark and zero goals from a permanent forward. It's not I good mean, enough. Well, I, you know, I I asked Christian before we started. I'd I'd love to know the last time a, a captain of a football side was equal lowest for possessions and marks in a game. Yeah, it's a, it's a really there's, there might be a a debate that that suggests it's really hard to captain as a deep forward because so often the ball's not in your area. But as your argument suggests, if you can also play midfield as well, like like Jack has in his previous. Seven or eight. Exactly. Throw yourself in there. Say, no, look, this game's getting away from us. I'm going to go and play midfield for three or four minutes, try and win a couple of clearances, stop this momentum, because momentum's so so important. Yeah, so I'll put my hand up. I think two weeks ago we spoke about medium forwards and how important they were for the competition. He was one of the names I dropped, so I thought it was a great move by North Melbourne sort of to identify what they had enough of in the midfield, and that was um, they probably had the clearance balls in there, and they moved Zeeble down because it was probably something they lacked forward. But I 100% agree with Jake's point. In a game like that, um, you know, the, the marquee game, you're playing forward, you're not getting a kick, you you can play midfield, you were recruited as a midfielder, why wouldn't you put yourself in there you're a little the bit more? captain of the football club. Mm. I mean, but forget all of that stuff. I, you know, so many people throughout his whole career have said Jack Zeeble's a great player, he's a gun, he's an A grader, he's a star. Jack Zeeble's not a star. Jack Zeeble is not a star player. He's not in North Melbourne's best four players. Well, he's, and that, he's and this, almost not in their and, best twenty-two at the moment. And this is this is a North side that has been dreadful this year. I crying mean, out for leadership as well. Crying out, you know. We look, we knocked Taylor Walker last year for for you know not leading from the front as a forward. But Taylor Walker is not the kind of guy that can go into a centre bounce and try and win a clearance. Jack Zebel is, and he's not doing it. And something's got to change for North, or they're going to stay anchored to the bottom of the table. I think the the point that I, that sort of stuck with me from that rant was. Basically, that it's their one marquee game for the year. This is this is their big. This is their it's big time chance. to shine, and they blew it. And the three votes goes to Carlton. Get the three votes this week. Oh, here we go. Oh, surprise, here surprise! Go. <laughs> Jeez, I knew that was coming. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, uh, the Blues uh, notched up win number one for the year. But I think it's the, the week that they had the week before. There were two ways that Carlton could have gone this week. They could have completely capitulated and thrown away another season, uh, or they could have knuckled down and made a statement with their backs against the wall, which they did against the Bulldogs in winning by 44 points. Harry Mackay copped a bit in the media over over the last week. I think Caroline Wilson on Footy Classified uh, said he hadn't improved to or hadn't um, developed uh, as much as Carlton fans had hoped uh, in his first three or four years at the club. He had 20 touches, another five contested marks and kicked four goals three. She said the same thing about Sam Petrevsky-Seaton. He had 35 touches, was everywhere, and uses the ball extremely well. Sam Walsh had another 26, and I think he averages about 25 or 26 so far this season, and he's the only player in VFL-AFL history to have had 24 or more touches through his first five games. Cripps is now the Brownlow favourite. I mean, look, I said this a couple of weeks ago when everyone was all doom and gloom about the Blues, but... Let's Look, not get too Jake down. As you say that. <laughs> I'm looking at Jake as I say that. He's a bit doom and gloom about the Blues. But Look, it's one win. It's one win. It, it's one win, but they made a good statement uh, and the fans will be happy. And like I said a couple of weeks ago, they just need to release the pressure. The fans need to have that win and they got it. And I think the Blues can play a lot with a lot more freedom now. Uh, and I think that, um, look, they've kick-started their season and they may, they may well win their next two, Hawthorne and North Melbourne. So taking away, I mean, 
as a Carlton fan, again, probably the biggest highlight of the day was we finally scored 100 points, finally reached that magical figure, which finally. we haven't done in <laughs> didn't 59, mention that, but yes. <laughs> 59 games. But for me personally, it was we actually won all four quarters, and that's the first time since round 18, 2013, that Carlton's won all four wow. quarters in a game. So it wasn't one of those games where we sort of, it was junk and you fell over the line late. They actually sort of went from go to woe, won all four quarters, as I said. That, as a fan, that was the most pleasing thing for me, that it was a complete complete games effort. And it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't a blowout from the start. I mean, the Dogs challenged them in the third quarter, got within three goals and were coming pretty hard. And Petrescu seaton the man who was under pressure this week, uh, delivered a really clutch goal after intercepting a Caleb Daniel kick into the back 50. Like, the signs... The signs were there for the Blues, and and they looked really, really good. He's had some, sorry, he's had some nice moments um, in the early part of his career, Petrovsky Seaton. But that was next level stuff, and I that's a a landmark game where you say, right, I'm gonna now put my hand up to to be to be a long term midfielder for Carlton alongside Paddy Cripps, and he was he was superb. He really was. That was easily the best game he's played, and and he'll be getting votes for that game. I mean, yeah, the midfield looks like it's got all the building blocks now, but I, I love the the bookends. I mean, looking. Back at that 2015 draft, the Blues absolutely nailed that first round with uh, Weedering at 1, McKay uh, at 10 and Kernow at 12. And they're all going to develop together and they all look like they're actually coming coming through at the same time. And I love seeing Weedering back to his, well, almost his season one form. He looks confident. He's, he's got that balance right between defending and, and mm. backing himself to he's win the back. ball. He's rediscovered um, so, Confidence is the biggest thing in his game. He just needs to sort of see ball, get ball type player. Yeah. And one question I'd like to ask you, Matt, and how much did you enjoy going to the game and, and watching it all unfold for a rare win? Um, there's a, bit, bit, a little bit of a bugbear for mine, but uh, I was at a christening in a oh, trucker no. on Sunday. Uh, I haven't seen a win live at the footy since mid-2017, I think, so Ooh. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know whether to laugh or cry on the weekend. <laughs> no, but look, oh, in all seriousness, um, the Blues are tracking well, and it's amazing what a week can do to the narrative because they got a percentage in the mid-90s a, dr- a bit of a drought-breaking win. They've busted the hundred-point monkey off the back, and now all of a sudden, it's going to be a positive media week for the Blues. And you're right you know, about you the- go back seven days, and honestly, the overreactions in footy media—it's just pathetic. Now, just lastly on that, the, you're hundred percent spot on with the pressure thing because all of a sudden now the players can play with just a, a tad more freedom, and all of a sudden you got two—you know—all of a sudden North Melbourne and Hawthorne—they're winnable games. Those two. Yep, that's true. Uh, we are here, of course, for footytips.com.au, where you can tip with all your friends and family, even though you might not be tipping too well. I know that I'm not. I think Neil, how are you doing? <laughs> I got six this week, which was by far my uh, my high score, so I'm pretty happy with that. Clearly have no idea what you're doing if you I, I know. Tell week. me about it. Well, actually, you've got a couple of interesting stats on some that, of these, some of, these, of not knowing what they're doing. Some of these stats are quite incredible. So looking across the, the competition average at footy tips, um, the, the average so far after round five... Um, per person is 21.7 correct tips out of 45 games <laughs> out of 45 <laughs> games so 21.7 this year at the same stage in the last two years it was 27 tips right and 28 tips right so people have six or seven tips worse off this year and it's just it just seems like it's a completely random event these and days going watching the footy and the trying to predict it the amazing thing is I remember last year and the year before everyone was saying the same thing how unpredictable it but was but this year's look, look next this level year. and to take that even further in, in terms of the Disney ESPN footy tipping um, competition oh, this is ridiculous we, I know <laughs> uh, of 90 odd people around the office 
The person who is winning is our lovely receptionist, Lauren, who filled out all her tips before the season started and only tipped by going home, away, home, away, home, away through the whole season, has not touched, and she's winning our footy tipping competition. Sums it up, really. I think she's one clear on top two, which is it's just amazing. Just we should get her in because she obviously knows more than, than what we do sometimes. <laughs> Um, so look, good luck this round. Um, who knows? I know we, we try and look at a, a lock and an upset for, for each round ahead of us and, and the, uh, we're only one day away from the new round starting, which is, it seems ridiculous. But that's unfortunately for my poor battling demons, my lock uh, for this round is the Tigers. I just think the demons are in, in absolutely Shocking. woeful form and the Tigers look like they're starting to build again. No Neville Jetta. I've actually gone for my outsider to be Melbourne. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> and it's just a, a, a little bit of a scurrilous one. I just, I think... The week they had, um, the week we've just seen with upsets, but the week also that Melbourne have, it's probably good that they've got that four or five day turnaround. Uh, they're going to get smashed. I just, yeah, I just, uh, again, I don't think Melbourne are that bad. I did see them against St. Kilda on the differ. weekend. Um, <laughs> again, this is probably the last chance I'm going to give them, but I think they're a great chance sort of, yeah, to hopefully turn it around. My certainty will be Brisbane in the Q clash up on Metricon. Yeah, uh, for my upset, I'm going to go Adelaide to beat St. Kilda. I think, um, I know they only beat Gold Coast, uh, on the weekend, the Crows. But I think they found a little bit. They rediscovered a little bit in the second half. The, the goal started to come, which has been their big issue scoring. And I think they'll, um, as an outsider, I'm surprised they're starting outside, despite uh, St Kilda's good start. You just have season. a hunch that Adelaide will get going at one I think point, so. I think so. Too much. I mean, if you look at teams on paper, Adelaide should win, but that's not how the season's gone. Uh, certainty, I think the Giants will bounce back from a really poor loss to Freo and... I think they'll win easily against Sydney. I'm with you on that one. I think the Swans at the SCG is just a ba don't tip them kind of thing. And I think the Swans anywhere at this at this point in time, they're rubbish. Uh, and uh, my outsider, I'm going to pick the Blues to beat the Hawks down in Launceston. Brave. Brave. <laughs> well, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll speak to you in the next one. Thanks for listening to the ESPN Footy Tips AFL Podcast.